Simon Morden, AO. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Pleasure having you on. Let's begin with the current environment. What's your evaluation on the strength of the domestic economy? I think the domestic economy's got different segments. Um, firstly, I'd say that the federal government have done an extraordinary job keeping the economy going with the job keeper and job seeker programs. Um, but there are some segments of the economy going gangbusters. So people exposed to online retail, the Harvey Normans, the JB Hi-Fi's, the Woolworths, um, they're going very strongly. And other areas of the economy exposed to tourism and leisure are gonna struggle for a period of time while we have borders shut. So um, there's no one size fits all, but I think we'll start to see some healthy growth coming through in the economy in the next 12 months period. And reflecting on the previous 12 months, what has been your advice to Luminous clients and what are some of the major challenges they've encountered? Yeah, I think the 12 months is, you can break up into segments. So you know, when, when we all went into shutdown in February, it was um, panic and preservation. Um, so none of us had been through this before. None of us knew how long it was going to continue for. And it was all about preserving cash and liquidity. Um, from May onwards, you saw a flurry of capital raisings, um, either um, what I'd call emergency capital raisings for companies that were running out of cash, um, or growth capital raisings for companies that could see opportunities to capitalize on the situation. Um, and moving into the back end of the year, you saw a pickup in merger and acquisition activity. Um, which we're seeing continue now. And um, I think it's going to be a very strong year this year. From a global perspective, how would you rate the attractiveness of Australia as a destination for capital in the medium to long term? I think we've got to be careful. Um, we've obviously had significant issues with the China relationship. And China has been the biggest source of capital, foreign direct investment into Australia. Um, that's not easily replaced. Um, Australia's probably 2% of the capital market index globally. You don't have to be here. It's a small consumer base. So I think we have to nurture our foreign investors. Uh, we have to make it easier. The FERB process can be complicated. Um, and we have to really attract foreign direct investment. So last year I was quite anxious about some of the things that were being done in that regard, and um, I hope that the government's heard the concerns of the business community and will work cooperatively to um, get through that. To what extent did COVID accelerate consolidation? Now, Australia is a very consolidated corporate market. There are two or three large companies in each sector, and the ACCC um, rightly um, reviews any form of consolidation. Um, so I, I wouldn't have thought that there's been much um, industry consolidation over the last five years because of that level of pre-existing consolidation. There have been strategic acquisitions, but they're not necessarily number one by number two. With respect to your philanthropic roles, how significantly have the arts in particular been affected by recent turbulence and what's required from either a governmental or community level to rebound? Arts have been smashed. Um, you know, institutions have been closed, um, theatres are silent or have been silent, um, museums have been shut. Um, 
Most of those organizations employ artists, so it's had a knock-on impact into the sector. Um, the government have done what they've been able to do um, to support those institutions, but it's going to be a long road back. And the theatre company is now running at 100% capacity, which is fantastic. Um, but if I look offshore, um, Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles has been shut 12 months. And the Tate has opened and closed three times and is currently closed. Um, so I think it's going to be a very challenging period for the arts sector. From a federal government perspective, what sort of reforms do you think the business community wants to see over the next 12 to 24 months? Oh, we're desperate to see labour market reform, productivity reform. We'd like to see some taxation reform. The challenge for government is um, we've got a two-house system and we've got to get legislation through both houses and we've got a federal election coming up. So um, uh, seeing near-term structural reform that this country desperately needs, I'm not that confident we're going to see it legislated as quickly as we'd all like. What are the opportunities that Australia should be grasping? Oh, I think we um, need to think about where we've got a competitive advantage. So areas like healthcare, um, areas like education, some segments of technology, um, we, we really need to leverage up and grow those places where we have competitive advantage. But at the same time, um, we've got to attract international customers. So if we're um, not seen as an attractive place by China, for their students to come, they won't come here. And um, the impact on the universities is significant. We've seen healthy GDP growth figures come out recently. What are the major headwinds facing Australia? I think that the risk of interest rate rises and the consequential knock-on effect to the domestic economy would be something that I'd call out. The Reserve Bank of tried to reassure us that interest rates aren't going to move materially. Um, but I don't think it needs much of a move in interest rates to have a dampening effect. Um, you know, the, the level of household debt is quite high, and a small move off a low base could have quite a significant impact. What impact have international border closures had on the local economy? Well, obviously very significant if you're exposed to tourism and hospitality. Um, you know, Qantas is one of my clients and um, you can see what the impact has been on them and how quickly they've had to adapt their business to the current circumstance. Let's explore your background. You were born in England in 1959. Talk to me about your upbringing and childhood memories. Yeah, I, I grew up in um, what I'd describe as a middle-class environment. Both my parents worked, um, so you know, there was always a nanny or an au pair to look after us um, because they were both um, working. And when I was seven, I was sent to boarding school, um, which was not uncommon. Um, but the consequence of that was that I didn't really have a relationship with my parents um, because I never saw them around. They, they were doing their own um, thing. And when I finished school, I decided to take a gap year and travel. And I travelled overland, and I didn't have any idea how far I'd get, but eventually I wound up in New Australia, having met a lot of Australians going the other way. 
and fell in love with Australia and um, tried to emigrate as an 18-year-old, but I had no qualifications. So I reluctantly went back to England and qualified as a chartered accountant and then immediately emigrated on the back of that. What made you fall in love with Australia? Remember what England was like in the 70s. The, there was the IRA. Um, Margaret Thatcher had just been elected. There was massive strikes. The garbage wasn't being collected. Um, one of my best friends at school's father was killed by the IRA. Um, I was in a building when an IRA bomb went off. Um, it just wasn't a pleasant place. And the old school tie was still very prevalent. So to get a job, you had to know someone, or your parents had to know someone. Um, I found Australia was a meritocracy. Um, everyone was very direct. There was none of that visible class structure to me. And I felt that if you worked hard, you could get ahead. Whereas in London, I didn't feel that that was necessarily the opportunity. So, um, and I wanted to go somewhere that my parents hadn't been, where I could prove to myself um, whether I could be successful or not. As you mentioned, by 1983, you qualified as a chartered accountant and emigrated to Australia permanently, leaving your family behind and settling into a new country. What was it that made life in Australia so liberating and what did you do when you arrived here? Yeah, I transferred with the accounting firm I worked for in London. So I transferred with Pete Marwick, which is now KPMG. And very quickly I realised that um, the accounting profession here was different from the accounting profession in England. And that's not where I wanted to spend the next 30 years. Um, I was attracted to investment banking. And so I, I moved after about six months into investment banking. and. Really, the rest is history. I, I worked hard. I um, learned about corporate Australia. I learned about the regulatory environment. And I wasn't shy in asking for support and mentorship and guidance. And um, I wound up at Ord Manette in 1984 with a fantastic boss um, who really gave me a break. and. Um, fell in love with investment banking. What was it that you liked about investment banking? Um, I liked the learning, um, so I was learning something every day, which I still do today. Um, I liked um, being around um, clients that had challenging issues to grapple with. I liked being around incredibly smart colleagues. Um, and I liked the ability to help solve a problem for a client. And um, I was very young. I was probably 24 when I went into it. Um, but I felt like I'd really landed in a place that I wanted to spend the rest of my um, business life in. Following a three-year journey at Ord Minette, you then took on the role of Head of Corporate Finance at BZW. Take us through your 10-year career at BZW and what the position involved. Yeah, so um, come 1988, um, the financial markets were deregulating. Um, Barclays had an investment bank that they were putting together in England as a consequence of the deregulation. Um, they wanted to form a similar business in Australia. 
Um, so they came looking for people to build a business. Um, I was very young, but I was ambitious. Um, I'd been made a partner at Audmanet in 1986, so I was like 26 years old. And the thought of starting a new business in Australia for a global bank um, excited me, even though I was a very young person. And um, the culture that BZW built here was extraordinary. It was a really team-orientated culture. Again, I was blessed with an extraordinary um, CEO who built that culture. And for 10 years, we um, did amazing things as a team. We grew to about 500 people, a significant part of the worldwide profits of Day Investment Bank came from Australia. And one day, under shareholder pressure, Barclays decided to get out of investment banking. Mm -hmm. um, so they put the BZW business up for sale globally, and they sold it to Credit Suisse um, with one condition in the sale, and that was that the Australian business would support the sale to Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse had a very similar business here, um, we didn't, as a management group, we didn't feel that we could take our culture and inculcate it into Credit Suisse. Uh, we thought very hard about it and we decided we couldn't support the transaction. So um, Barclays sold BZW Worldwide X Australia mm -hmm. to Credit Suisse and they carved out Australia and said, go and find a buyer yourselves because we don't want to be in this business. And we found ABN AMRO. Um, ABN AMRO had a small business here that they wanted to grow. Um, it felt to us that we could basically back ourselves into ABN AMRO and keep the whole thing intact and take the culture forward. Um, what I didn't realize was the Dutch didn't have much of a sense of humor, and they certainly didn't understand investment banking. And after a year, I realized um, it wasn't for me. And so with a few colleagues, we left and we set up our own business, uh, probably the first new investment bank in Australia for 20 years. Um, it was a gutsy thing to do, but we felt that if we didn't do it, we'd regret it. And if it didn't work, we could get a job somewhere else. So um, we each had the support of our wives and um, we started in a room probably a quarter of the size of this room. And um, we grew that business, which was called Caliburn, to um, a very significant size. And in 2010, we sold it to a US-listed bank called Greenhill. Caliburn was involved in a number of significant transactions, one in particular being in the advisory of Westpac on its $18 billion acquisition of St George Bank, amongst others. On reflection, what are some of the deals you remember most fondly during your career at Caliburn? Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's about um, relationships with clients. And some of my clients we've looked after for 25 years. So um, that, that's the most interesting for me, rather than the individual mm -hmm. transaction. Um, but you know, so, some of the, the things that I've most enjoyed 
Um, we acted for BAT when they bought the Australian tobacco business, British American Tobacco. Um, we acted for um, British Airways when they decided to sell um, their investment in Qantas. And that's what opened the door for a 20-year relationship we've had with Qantas. Um, but there were many things that were um, fantastic. And, and probably ultimately the best thing was growing our young people's careers. Yeah. And yes, some of those people who joined us as young executives are now our partners. And that, yeah, that, that's probably the most enjoyable piece of that. As you touched on, in 2010, Caliburn Partnership was sold to US-based Greenhill for a reported $200 million. How did this deal come about? And even though you stayed on until 2014, what sort of emotions did you experience post-sale? Were you excited, relieved? Yeah, it, it's interesting. We had had an informal um, relationship with Greenhill. So we marketed to their clients, they marketed to our clients. Um, they, um, they were keen to have a presence here, um, but knew that they couldn't hire people themselves. And one of our partners decided that he wanted to ease back and do other things, uh, philanthropic things. And so I said to Greenhill, there may be an opportunity for you to acquire our business um, because one of our partners would like to monetize his investment. And they made a proposal. There was very little negotiation. We knew them well. And um, we sold probably within three months of the first discussion. Uh, we had a clear understanding that we would be free to continue to build and grow the business. And about nine months in, the person we sold to died in a plane crash. Um, you know, one of the worst telephone calls I've ever had was like two in the morning. He was flying his plane to a client meeting with his family and the plane iced up and they all perished. Um, and the guy who took the relationship over from him didn't have the same level of respect and understanding of what we had built here. And I quickly realized I wasn't a very good employee. And um, I stayed out of um, loyalty to the clients and out of loyalty to the team. Um, but after about three years, I was really not enjoying it. And um, ultimately, I decided to leave, as did a number of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a long gardening leave period during which I lost 65 kilos of weight. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was banter weight and um, out of my gardening leave, we all met and decided we'd try and do it again. So that was um, six years ago. And as I understand it, over the course of that gardening leave period, you took a year traveling and living in Italy. Talk to me about some of the experiences you had when you were over there. Yeah, we, we've had a home in Italy for 20 years. And um, yeah, until our son finished school, we were bound by school holidays in terms of the amount of time we could spend there. Um, but increasingly, we were enjoying our time there and I was working effectively from there, and so in a year that I knew I wasn't allowed to work, mm. um, and if I'd stayed in Sydney, the temptation would be too high, 
and we decided to move to Italy for that year and um, I needed a new challenge and given I wasn't allowed to work I thought I'd try and lose 20 kilos but I wound up losing 65. So upon your return you co-founded Luminous Partners in partnership with Evercore in 2015. Talk to me about the business and what services you specialise in. It's exactly the same as the business I was in in 1984. So um, it's what we did at Ord Minette, it's what we did at Visa W, it's what we did at Caliburn, it's now what we do here. It's the only thing I know which is giving independent advice to our clients. Um, that advice may be around their balance sheet, it may be around their strategy, um, but that's what I've done for 35 years and hope to do for another dec decade or two yet. In which sectors of the market do you see the greatest opportunity for investment? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, Rob, because unlike our um, integrated investment banking colleagues, we don't think that way. We, we are first and foremost advisors um, and we tend to build a trusted advisor relationship with one company in each industry. So if we you know, have a relationship, for instance, with Qantas, we would never go and talk to Virgin. And that's how we built this business, is off deep relationships with one company in each sector. And we don't think sectorally. Um, companies aren't coming to us asking us um, if we know more about their business than they do. Um, they, they know more about their business than any bank will ever know. Um, we just happen to be very experienced in giving advice. And you know, a CEO may only do one M&A transaction in their career. They may only do one capital raising in their career. Um, we've done huge numbers of those, so we know how to do them. Um, so we, we don't think, if you were to ask that question of a Goldman Sachs banker uh, or a Macquarie banker, you, you would get a clear answer, but it's just not the way we think. What are the fundamentals involved in deal making based on your experience? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, we were given two ears and one mouth. And I think um, for me, I, I remember that. And so the most fundamental issue is be able to listen. Um, too many people in this industry think that they're the voice and they don't use the ears. And um, I've often felt that we, we should be likened to being corporate psychiatrists. Um, our clients normally know what the problem is. They may not know what the solution is. And often they don't have the confidence to be certain they've got the problem right. So by sitting with a client and talking and drawing out the issues, um, we normally land at a common point. But the most important skill, in my view, is being able to listen. And very few people are good listeners. You've met, worked with and advised some of this country's most respected business, media and political figures. Who have been the standout figures you've met over the journey? No, very interesting question. Um, in terms of CEOs, um, undoubtedly Alan Joyce would be a standout for me. Um, 
in my view, he runs the most complicated business. Um, he doesn't control the delivery of his fleet. There are two manufacturers in the world, and if they are running behind schedule, he doesn't get the planes that he ordered years ago. He doesn't control his fuel price, which is his biggest input cost. He can hedge it, but he doesn't control it. Um, he doesn't control the borders. And as you've seen in the last year, um, borders can open and shut, um, sometimes for good reason, sometimes for less good reason. Um, and he doesn't know if at any moment in time there's going to be an accident. Mm. And so for me, and I've been fortunate enough to work with him for many years, um, he is a standout CEO. Um, another CEO that I would call out as being you know, right up there is Brad Banducci, who runs Woolworths, um, a man that you will seldom read or hear about in terms of what his personal interests are, but he runs a business with quarter of a million staff, and um, I would put him right up there. Um, I've met some amazing people in the not-for-profit space who've built extraordinary institutions who the business community probably doesn't know, but they are um, passionate leaders and you know, world-class in their space. So I put someone like Lizanne McGregor, who's built the Museum of Contemporary Art into the most visited contemporary art museum in the world, in a city that's the other side of most parts of the world. Um, there have been some great politicians. So yeah, I think um, Paul Keating did some extraordinary things in his time. John Howard did some extraordinary um, things. When you meet people like that, um, they're inspiring and um, gives you hope. How different is Australia today compared to when you arrived as a 23-year-old in 1983? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So when I, when I chose to emigrate, my father said he'd wasted his money on my education. Um, he had a 1950s television perception of Australia, that sort of Barry McKenzie, Dame Edna Everidge sort of perception of what Australia was like. He hadn't been here when he made that comment. Um, he subsequently came, fell in love with the place, apologised, and ultimately he died and is buried in our garden. Um, but I, I think Australia's been through some cycles, but if to have 30 plus years of uninterrupted growth until um, the pandemic hit is quite extraordinary. Um, we still are a community that doesn't do enough outward thinking, um, in my view. Um, you know, we're not a country that properly understands what's going on in other parts of the world. Um, but as a place to live and bring up a family and work hard and build a career and build a business, um, it's one of the best places you could do that. You've been a noted philanthropist almost your entire career and your entire life. How far have you seen that change amongst fellow Australians in terms of giving and donating? Yeah, I think Australians have always been incredibly generous at the grassroots. So if there's been a flood or a bushfire, um, 
or an incident of natural disaster, Australians are the first to volunteer and they're the first to put in $10 or $20. Where Australia's dramatically lagged is the wealthy Australians. And they give far less of their wealth away as a generality than their international peers. And um, that has been a campaign of mine since I had the capacity to make a difference. And um, I believe very strongly that um, those who have done well out of this country need to have a legacy and make a difference. Some do, but not enough. One of the most significant achievements and donations you've made, of course, was the $15 million donation several years ago. Have you seen other wealthy Australians start to offer up that sort of money? Yeah, I have. And um, a number of people who have made landmark donations have said that our gift um, made them start to think about what they should be doing. Mm. And I'm very pleased because we were very anxious doing it in terms of being in the public eye. We're, we're not people that seek that, but I was leading the campaign and I felt I had to um, do it in a public way rather than do it as an anonymous donor in order to encourage others. And I'm really pleased the number of wealthy people who've said that gift made them think whether they were doing enough. Uh, so the pain, the pain was worth it. I've got to ask you, what's going on in the investment banking sector at the moment? There's all sorts of new startups, people leaving, some of the bigger names left, right and centre. Every time you open up the AFR, there's more big names that have left. Well, what's, what's driving that? Yeah, there's never been more competition. Um, you know, Australia's always been a very competitive environment. What's happened is working for a big global investment bank has become less fun than it used to be. And the compensation arrangements have changed, so um, those people who did well at big investment banks are doing less well. Um, they're increasingly being taken away from their clients and being asked to do administrative things that is not what they enjoy. So, in, you know, we were early trendsetters in that when we decided in um, 1999 to set up our own business and I've been surprised how few chose not to follow us but in the last couple of years I've realized that there was going to be this um, rush with people like Baron Joey and Jardin and Mollus and Jeffries um, and it's good um, you know for us what distinguishes our business is that there are very few seasoned bankers left most of them have moved into private equity or running family offices. They've got out of the advisory business. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if a board's got a thorny problem, they, they don't look for the brand above the door. They look for the individual that can help them. And we've been a significant beneficiary as our competitors retire. Not that the brand names disappear, but as the individuals disappear, um, we've been a very significant beneficiary of that. My final question is, what's next for Simon Mordant and Luminous Partners? Well, for Simon Mordant, um, 
My wife calls me octopus because I'm not very good at saying no. So <laughs> um, I'm constantly growing new tentacles. Um, but I am more attuned to letting old tentacles drop off. So um, I am very passionate about the community. Um, and I'm blessed that I um, have board roles across the world, which interests me. Um, I love this business. Um, they'll carry me out of in a box. It's a bit like a good wine. You get better as you get older. Um, and I can do this from pretty much anywhere, mm. um, which is good because it fits in with my community interests. The firm will continue to grow. Um, all my partners are very ambitious about the business. Um, we want to continue to breed world-class advisors and create a culture of giving strong independent advice. So I think it's more of the same, but fun. Well, Simon Morden, AO, a, a truly great Australian. Thanks yeah. for your time this afternoon. A pleasure, Rob. Thank you.